A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. If you look at the roster change, the major one was bringing in Bill Walton. Mm-hmm. And that was a risk. As a matter of fact, uh, Marvin Barnes received a call from Walton. Walton was playing for the Clippers and... He called Marvin and said, uh, can you hop a plane out to San Diego and uh, work with me because the Clippers have offered me a chance to make my own trade if I can arrange it. So for the entire summer, he and Marvin Barnes worked out together and he finally got a call from Red Arback and they had made a trade. They had traded uh, Cedric Maxwell for Walton and Walton was ecstatic and his first question is, when do I have to be in Boston to take a physical? Walton hadn't played much over the past four years. One year, he didn't even play at all. and Another year, he played only 16 games. Arbach just looked at him and said, uh, why waste time with a physical? You wouldn't pass one anyhow. <laughs> I always like to say that Michael got to play with me for a year at North Carolina. <laughs> I think it really helped him. Spectacular player from the beginning. You can see right away, Jordan was going to be a big-time scorer. And showed what an impact he was going to have on the league. This is NB86, celebrating the 30-year anniversary of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls' 1986 NBA season. And now your hosts, Adam Ryan and Aaron Steen. My guest today is Professor of Journalism at Fisher College. He authored the recently released book, Bad News, The Turbulent Life of Marvin Barnes, Pro Basketball's original renegade. He was an award-winning beat writer at the Boston Herald, and he covered the 1980s Celtics for seven years, which makes him the ideal guest to conclude our NB86 series. Mike Carey, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be there, Adam. Unfortunately, Aaron, who's a great mate of mine and co-host of this series, was unable to join us today for the chat. I'm more than excited to have you on and, and talk about this 1986 season. Even before we get to that, Mike, um, I'd just love to know a little bit more about your fandom of the Celtics. Well, you obviously live in Massachusetts and you went to Boston University, from what I can tell, and then you've had a storied career, of course, associated with the Celtics and beyond. Um, when did you first become a fan of the Celtics or the NBA in general, and, and how did that sort of come to be? Well, I was a news editor for the Herald. I was looking to do something different, and the Celtic beat writer took a job in Dallas, and uh, I applied for it. I got the job, although I have to admit, I had never seen a pro basketball game. Wow. I was a, a hockey guy. I played hockey in college and, uh, you know, was an avid Bruins fan. Uh, fortunately, uh, Bill Fitch, I went right up to him and said, uh, Bill, I don't know the first thing about basketball. <laughs> Can you help me out here? And he gave me hours of his time explaining the strategy of the game and was really, you know, was learning on the job, but uh, Bill Fitch was a, a great mentor. So uh, that's how I, I began covering him. 
good to hear the behind the scenes there. He was so willing and accommodating with his time there for you. I found him to be a, a great guy. He was tough on the players, but now that most of them have had time to look back on it, players like Robert Paris say that uh, he really taught him the game, how the game should be played, and that he wouldn't have had the success that he did without Bill Fitch. And, of course, Larry Bird thinks that Bill Fitch was one of, if not the best coach he ever had. Hmm. Very interesting, no doubt. Um, now, the 1985 season ended with the LA Lakers uh, celebrating on Boston Garden's parquet floor, uh, albeit briefly, and then they disappeared into the dressing rooms. Uh, what do you remember of the fallout from that 85 finals defeat that then led to Boston's drive and determination to ready themselves for that following season? Well, you know, it was a crushing, crushing uh, loss, but if you look at the roster change, the, the major one was bringing in Bill Walton. Mm-hmm. And that was a risk. A matter of fact, uh, Marvin Barnes received a call from Walton. Walton was playing for the Clippers, and he called Marvin and said, uh, can you hop a plane out to San Diego and uh, work with me because the Clippers have offered me a chance to uh, make my own trade if I can arrange it. So for the entire summer, he and Marvin Barnes worked out together, and uh, he finally got a call from Red Arback, and they had made a trade. They had traded uh, Cedric Maxwell for Walton. And Walton was ecstatic, and his first question is, when do I have to be in Boston to take a physical? Walton hadn't played much over the past four years. One year he didn't even play at all, and another year he played only 16 games. Arback just looked at him and said, uh, uh, why waste time with a physical? You wouldn't pass one anyhow. <laughs> he, he certainly did suffer from his share of leg-related and, and health issues there. So, um, but as you mentioned there, uh, he had a great season in 86 with the Celtics and I believe he played 80 regular season games. So everything seemed to fall into place there. But that's a fascinating little tidbit there about Marvin Barnes. Before we got recording uh, for the episode this morning, I was just saying to you, I haven't had a chance to read your book yet and uh, what a fascinating bit of information there that Walton and, and Marvin were uh, so close during that off-season after 85 before the 1986 campaign began. Yeah, the other thing is Marvin at that time hadn't touched the basketball for two years. He had played in, I think, 83 with the Continental Basketball Association, a minor league team, and uh, I couldn't figure out why Walton, who had all these pros that lived in the San Diego area to choose from, would make a call to Marvin and say, I need you to help me get in shape. And, and so I asked Walton, and, and Walton's response was, Marvin never backs down from anyone. And even though I got five inches in height on him and probably 20 pounds, uh, he's just not going to back down. And that's what I need. I need somebody who's going to push me to the limits, and Marvin was the guy, and uh, they worked out hard every day, starting at 8 o'clock in the morning and going until 5 at night. You know, it worked out fantastic. And, you know, again, the transition from the 85 to 86, uh, Walton just was a breath of fresh air. I mean, he all he wanted to do was win a championship. He didn't care whether he played 5 minutes or 20 minutes. He really fit in well, teammates all loved him, and it gave the Celtics such a uh, 
luxury up front. I mean, you had Parrish, you had McHale, you had Bird, and you had Walton, and they they could rotate in and out and stay fresh. And uh, you had the best outlet passer in basketball in Walton. He still could rebound. He just gave 120%, and, you know, really was one of the, the, the major factors in, in the Celtics' success that year. Yeah, just incredible. And that tidbit about Barnes, just fascinating. I, th- I consider myself a, a big-time fan of NBA history, and yet, because I obviously haven't read your book to this point, but did not actually know anything about the fact that Marvin had such a key role to play in the transition from Bill's time in LA to then going to the uh, Celtics. So it's quite fascinating. I also asked Marvin that question. I said, you know, why do you think Walton chose you to help him get in shape? And Marvin's uh, response was, Thoroughbreds don't race against the plow horses. <laughs> oh, that's that's so good. Oh, that's great to hear this sort of stuff. I appreciate you sharing it with uh, with myself and uh, our listener as well. Um, did you actually get to travel with the team on the away games, or were you based in Boston and just covered all the home games? No, I covered about a hundred and ten games a year. Uh, you had the exhibition season, then you had you know eighty one games, and then you had the playoffs. So. With the way the Celtics went, almost every year I was covering, you know, at least 110 games. Yeah, they were a force to be reckoned with. Uh, incredible. So just in terms of preseason games for this 85-86 season, do you remember anything about the first few games you saw during the preseason? I know they played a game or two at Hartford as a sort of home away from home, but were there a few uh, memories at all from that preseason that actually thought this could be something really special? Casey Jones was the coach, and he was a real low-key guy. Uh, the players hated playing in Hartford because it was an hour-and-a-half bus ride and an hour-and-a-half back. And eventually the, the Celtics stopped playing in Hartford, but it was a contractual deal. The players themselves weren't real happy about having to you know, travel an hour-and-a-half down and an hour-and-a-half back when the Boston Garden was available. They actually made more money playing in Hartford than they did playing in the Garden because of the, the fees they uh, uh, they got for playing in the games. The games themselves, uh, you know, Casey was just experimenting to see what the best lineups were. He, I think he wanted to see how durable Walton would be. You know, he had all the other pieces. When you talk about team chemistry, uh, that Celtic team had it, I mean, from top to bottom. And they all got along. I mean, you hear about different factions on different teams that, you know, this guy doesn't like how this guy plays. And another guy thinks that uh, that his teammate is shooting way too much. The Celtics just, you know, they just went to the hot hand. Whoever was hot, they made sure that they got the ball. Of course, usually it was Bird and McHale, but they had other scorers. I mean, Robert Parrish was a... I think he he was so underrated because he didn't care whether he how many times he shot the ball. There were games where he'd only take three or four shots, uh, and he he had a great jumper from the foul line, just a very smooth jumper, impossible to block, and very accurate. He just wanted to contribute. He was like Walton, you know. He'd let Bird and McHale get all the glory, and it didn't phase him in the slightest. What Robert provided was he was great on the break. He he could outrun any center in the league. It's also not often that a team gets to add a future Hall of Famer 
to a, a roster which already was going to have three future Hall of Famers in terms of the big three as well. So quite frightening that that, that was the uh, addition to the team. Uh, now, in terms of the regular season, the Celtics were pretty much uh, a wrecking ball, just tearing teams apart on their way to a 67-15 and 15 record in 1986. Um, what are maybe a couple of memories that you can share from your time following the team throughout the regular season where they were actually 40 and one at home, which is astonishing, a record that still hasn't been topped even to this day? The fan noise and the, the garden atmosphere, I mean, they, they love playing in the garden. I think their margin of victory at the garden was somewhere around 14 points a game. Mm. Teams would come into the garden, and before they even put on their uniform, they knew they were going to lose to the Celtics. <laughs> that was a Celtic advantage, you know, because the Celtics had such a great record at home that when the Celtics came up on an opponent's schedule, they chalked it up as a loss before they even went onto the court. Yeah, it's incredible. The psychology was, you know, was there. I mean, these teams were just completely psyched out. How are we going to stop Bird? How are we going to stop McHale? How are we going to stop Ainge from shooting threes? How are we going to stop Walton from dominating the boards? I mean, Walton was the perfect sixth man because when McHale or Bird came out or Parrish came out, all of a sudden you got, you know, a 7-2 guy coming in who's fresh. Yeah. And he's playing against the second stringers now. Yeah, it's just remarkable. The depth they had was unbelievable, but more than that, it was just the you had twelve guys who genuinely liked each other. Even at guard, you had you had Dennis Johnson, who you didn't really have a point guard. You had two guys that could handle the ball fairly well in DJ and Danny Ainge, uh, and then coming off the bench, you had Jerry Seasting, who. I thought was a very underrated player. He always shot for a tremendous percentage, could hit the three, and was a scrapper. I mean, he 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 was a tough six foot one point guard. But uh, they just didn't have any they didn't have any weaknesses. And I think all the other teams sensed that too. Remarkable. And uh, you mentioned how Seasting was one of the scrappers. Um, another thing with the Boston crowds. And I was really fortunate to actually, in 1994, so the Big Three era had obviously long gone, but uh, in 1994, I got to witness one game live in person at Boston Garden. I was up in the nosebleed section and it was so hot in there, but it was just a remarkable experience that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. And that was for a regular season game against the Golden State Warriors. So I can't even imagine transposing that to the mid-80s to be a part of this um incredible occurrence that was happening here with the 86 Celtics. Um, but I know that the Boston fans loved the guys that would come off the bench and work equally as hard when they had the chance to shine in limited minutes. Yeah. At the end of the bench, you had uh, Rick Carlisle, who you know went on to be a fantastic NBA coach. And you had Greg Kite, who was 6'11", solid as a rock. Uh, and if they were having trouble with a physical center, Casey would say, Greg, go in there and pick up a couple thousand, knock this guy around a little bit. Uh, uh, and and again, Greg Kite and Rick Carlisle were at the end of the bench. But what they did very well was during practices, they pushed the veterans. They wanted to get some playing time. And in order to get some playing time, they had to show that they could compete. Kite had to compete with Parrish and Walton. Rick Carlisle had to compete with DJ and, uh, and uh, Danny Ainge. So there was a healthy competition at, at practice. And what was unusual 
is that after practice ended, and they went through a good hour, hour and a half practice every day, uh, the players would all hang around and play three-on-three three or four-on-four four for another two hours. You just didn't hear about that with any other team. But they just enjoyed each other, and they enjoyed the competition, and they knew they had something special. Just great to hear this sort of stuff. So that leads me to our next question. Is this the practices at, is it called Hellenic College? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Hellenic College. It was just a, uh, it was a religious school. The facilities were terrible. You know, you had a, a, a small gym that had a, a stage on one side of the gym. The weight rooms consisted of uh, maybe about four barbells. <laughs> I mean, it was just terrible facility. It, yeah. it really was in a, a religious school, and it was out of the way. They couldn't practice the garden because they were sharing the garden with uh, not only with the Bruins, but with the uh, Ringling Brothers Circus, uh, with the Ice Capades. Uh, so they just settled on Hellenic College in Brookline. Players didn't seem to mind. They just had a great time. And, you know, nobody ever complained about little Hellenic College. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the locker room was just, you know, you had two showers for, for 12 guys. So... <laughs> It wasn't exactly a bit of paradise. I can only imagine. Just one last thing about that practice facility. Um, if you look hard enough on YouTube, you'll find some footage where it does show uh, a few minutes here and there from the college where they are doing their practice. But um, did you get to watch full-length practices or were you only let in as a group of the media at a certain time? How did that sort of work, particularly during that fascinating 86 season? It was entirely different than how it is today. I mean, today almost every team... Uh, closes practices and at the very end they may let the media in to watch the practice the last couple minutes of practice uh, but back in 86 it was open practice you could go sit down and watch the entire practice the differences were you took the same plane flights as the players there were no private jets back then you stayed at the same hotels I mean today the reporters stay at the Holiday Inn, uh, and the players stay at the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> it's just entirely different. Yep. The travel could take a toll on the players because you were always flew commercial. You'd have a game that may go to 11 o'clock, then you'd go out to dinner, and then you'd have to get up at 6 o'clock to take a bus uh, to the airport. You know, it was a lot more strenuous than it is today. Uh, today, you know, if if the Celtics were playing in uh, Atlanta, right after the game, they'd hop on their charter and be back in Boston by 1 o'clock in the morning. The contrast between how things are today and 30 years ago uh, are very stark, to say the least. Um, I'd just like to touch on the 86 playoffs before we just talk about the finals themselves. Sure. Uh, in round one of 86, the Celtics matched up against Michael Jordan and his Chicago Bulls. And uh, most people know Jordan missed 64 regular season games with a broken bone in his foot. But in game one at Boston, uh, had 49 points, which is a remarkable effort in itself. But he somehow topped that in game two with that stunning 63-point effort. Um, however, the Celtics held on to win that two-overtime epic. Um, returning home, Chicago then lost by almost 20 points as the Celtics completed the 3-0 sweep. What do you recall about that first-round matchup there, Mike? Well, I, I recall the 63-point game. They started with Dennis Johnson covering 
Jordan, and I think after, I want to say after about 15 minutes, Jordan had 24 points. Then they switched to to uh, Danny Ainge, and he didn't have much better luck. Then they switched to Jerry Seasting, and of course, Jerry at 6-1 struggled too. Jordan was just red hot, but what saved the Celtics, and you know, they managed to get it into overtime, and what saved them is the Bulls just didn't have an answer for McHale and Bird. Mm, they were the, the factor that certainly got them over the line in that one, and uh, having a quick look at the box score for that game, and Larry Bird had a fantastic game, which gets overlooked uh, when you look back historically because of Jordan's incredible performance, but I'm just looking at Bird's stats now. He had 36 points, 12 rebounds, and eight assists. Uh, Mikhail also had, you know, 27 points, 15 boards. Um, so overlooked in the fact of Jordan stunned the league and pretty much it was his coming out party of sorts. Uh, the Celtics still had those very dependable, uh, future Hall of Famers, of course, as you're suggesting there too. Yeah. And, and, and again, Dennis Johnson was one of the best defenders in the league. I mean, he made the all defensive team, uh, year after year after year. For that one game, he just struggled to cover Jordan. DJ wasn't the quickest guy on the court, but he had a great sense of anticipating what his opponent was going to do. He got a great sense of getting position so that if, if a player liked to drive to the right, he would station himself and force the guy to go left. Uh, he was a student of the game. As Larry Bird has said, Many, many times, uh, you know, best teammate he ever had. Mm, that says a lot coming from uh, one of the greatest players to ever lace up a pair of shoes. Now, um, the Celtics disposed of uh, Atlanta in five games in round two, and then they swept the Milwaukee Bucks, who were a great team throughout a majority of the 1980s, it should be said too, swept them in the conference finals. And meanwhile, out west, uh, Houston, behind Ralph Sampson's miracle shot at the buzzer in game five against the LA Lakers, stunned LA and the Rockets advanced to the NBA finals so do you remember the build-up to those finals and then how did Boston view the notable absence of their fierce rival from LA well I don't think they took Houston uh, very lightly because the Twin Towers two young guys who had had incredible seasons both of them Mm. Uh, you know that shot that Samson made against the Lakers I think he threw it over his shoulder and into the basket. Yeah. I mean, it was it was just an incredible shot that got them to the finals. Mm-hmm. That was a tough tough team. It was a, it was a tough matchup. I think what really uh, stirred the Celtics up was when Ralph Sampson started a fist fight with Jerry Seasting. That was in uh, back in Houston when they came back for uh, one of the games there, wasn't it? Right, it was. And of course, it, Houston won that game. Uh, but I think it really fired the Celtics up. I, I think that was uh, a key moment. Elijah Wan had a, had a rough game the next game. It turned into an easy, you know, I shouldn't say easy, but it really was. The, you know, the final games were, were easy for the Celtics. Hmm. They couldn't stop McHale inside. Uh, Ainge had a couple excellent games. And, of course, you know, Larry Bird, I think he hit four three-pointers in the fourth quarter of one game to to give them the win. I'm sure if 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 you ask the Celtics now who would you rather play, they would have said, you know, we would have rather played Houston, but 
uh, you know, nothing compared to the, the, the Celtic-Laker rivalry, that's for sure. Undoubtedly. Now, during the finals, um, were you seated somewhere near courtside or, or sort of halfway up? Whereabouts were you seated throughout the series? Right at courtside. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was in back of the basket. They had a certain number of, uh, of, of seats in back of the basket, so I had a good view for it. Uh, I remember, I remember when Seasting did get in that fight, and afterward, I I said, "Geez, you know, what are you crazy? You know, fighting a guy who's seven four? <laughs> he said, "Ah, my little son Jared, who's two years old, hits harder than Ralph does." <laughs> oh, that's tremendous. Uh, I think one other incident in the series as well, which got quite ugly too, but. Uh, I'm sure that, and I have read and, and seen, of course, through some YouTube clips, that when Samson returned to the confines of Boston Garden, the crowd were on him for the majority of the time, any time he was near the ball or even on the court. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was an obvious mismatch. And when he when he came back to, to the garden, I, he was just booed every time he touched the ball, even even when he was just standing there. I mean, for being so highly touted, that probably was the the highlight of his career was that that final series because he he really never did much after that eighty six series. Yeah. Now I was going to actually ask. This was probably going to test your memory to the absolute extreme. But during the eighty six regular season, in their only visit to Boston, uh, Ralph Sampson took a really nasty fall and he had to go to a Boston area hospital to get some scans because they thought he may have at first broken his neck or broken his back. Do you actually happen to remember the incident? Because I've read about it since and we covered it earlier in our NB86 series where we broke down the season. I remember them, you know, they had a uh, a garage built into the building and I remember the EMTs coming and strapping him on a, a stretcher and taking him out. To be honest, I don't remember exactly how the, the fall occurred. I don't think it was a, a as a result of... Uh, anything other than an awkward fall yeah yeah i've just i uh, was curious i've never seen footage of it i mean if it happened these days there'd be 25 different camera angles but back then of course um you know a solitary visit from a western conference team during the regular season not readily as available now in terms of the celebrations post game once the celtics wrapped up the series in game six um it was the franchise's 16th title in its history i'd just like to know in the days that followed even back in the locker rooms afterwards, what do you recall from that period of time uh, as a team celebrated that uh, fantastic, fantastic victory? Well, I thought I was smart, and I had sort of hid in the corner <laughs> as they opened all the champagne bottles, but Jerry Seasting actually spotted me, <laughs> uh, came over, shook the champagne bottle up, and I got a soaking. <laughs> oh, that's great. As did most of the reporters, you know. I remember Red giving his speech, and Ainge, being a Mormon, had a can of orange soda. Everybody else had beers. And that's where you really saw the camaraderie. I mean, the players all went out to, I presume it was a bar somewhere, uh, with their families and uh, celebrated afterward. And then there was the celebration at City Hall. And everything looked great for the year after. Unfortunately, Walton broke his foot again in a preseason practice and that sort of ruined the chemistry for the year after 
And then they had a string of injuries. Uh, Kevin McHale broke a navicular bone in his ankle. He had to have a a three-inch screw put in. Mm. He was in so much pain. And for a while, he he thought it was just an ankle sprain. Uh, And he played on it for more than a month. And then he finally was in Chicago, and the pain got so bad that he saw the Chicago Bulls team doctor, and they took another set of x-rays, and they said, Geez, you got a, a major break in your navicular bone. Well, wow. they put this three-inch screw in his his foot, and it, today, if you watch Kevin, he has a tough time even walking the sidelines. He's in a terrible amount of pain. There were just a number of things that went wrong. You know, starting with Walton, they really missed him in '87, and nothing I think was ever going to top that 86 championship yeah understandable um now i don't want to bring it to a downer but i would like to just quickly ask um following the jubilation of that 86 championship win only a few days after that 86 nba draft the shock death of len bias who the celtics picked number two overall uh, from the university of maryland uh, that happened uh, tragically people were stunned of course um what was it like for the team and and just the greater boston area um, yourself included, of course, being a, a key follower and uh, beat writer for the Celtics, to go from the joys of uh, that victory to then the terrible low of just hearing the news about Len's tragic death. Yeah, um, he was drafted, and then that night, Reebok, who he was signing with, mm-hmm. threw a party for him. I didn't go to the party, but Ainge went, and Danny had three young children. He was sitting with Len, and he said... Uh, Len, uh, are you are you a good babysitter? And Len said, uh, I guess I could be a good babysitter. He said, Well, I got three kids, so uh, and you're a rookie, so I'm going to be calling on you. And Len was uh, talking about what he wanted to do was design clothes. He drank Seven Up all night, and then he got on a plane after the party was over and went back to Washington. And so the next day. Ainge and I were at this golf tournament, and this fan came up to Danny and said, uh, uh, what a terrible day. And Ainge and I are looking at each other because there isn't a cloud in the sky. And the guy said, oh, you guys haven't heard the news. And we said, what news? He said, well, Len Bias died. Wow. And Danny couldn't believe it because he had just been with him eight hours previous. Yeah, of course. You know, Arbach had known uh len bias since his high school days so nobody could figure out how how could this healthy guy uh just die of a heart attack because that was the original story that was coming out of washington Mm -hmm. and of course later on it became clear that he died of a cocaine overdose you know it it shocked everybody It, it really did because this guy was so so talented Red Arbach used to hold summer camps for kids, and what he would do, and it was legal back then and no longer is, is he would bring in some of the best young college players to act as counselors at his basketball camp. All right. At night, the counselors would join some of the Celtic veterans and scrimmage. That's great. And the kids, the campers, would sit in the stands, and uh, you know it would be like watching an NBA game. Glenn Bias was absolutely outplaying guys that had been in the NBA for years. Mm. So, you know, Arbach, he made a great trade. He traded Gerald Henderson uh, to Seattle and 
fortunately for the Celtics, you know, today when you trade something for a first-round pick, there's always a condition put on it. Like uh, if it's in the top five, you don't get it. Yep. Well, there was no conditions to this trade, so bias, I think, was the second pick of the draft. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Now you're right. That's it. So they got the second pick of the draft, and Arbach knew what he had. I mean, with the addition of Glenn Bias, they could have won three more straight championships. He was that good. Mm. He could ball handle. He could uh, he could rebound. He could he had a tremendous first step to the basket, and he had a smooth jumper. I mean, he had all the tools. You know, with the addition of him, what a dynasty that could have been. Oh no doubt. It's uh, it's just heartbreaking to think of the possibilities of what could have been, let alone the fact of how tragic it was just for his immediate family and friends, of course. But uh, I really appreciate you sharing some of these stories as well, particularly about you know learning the news of his passing and then uh, about him and Ainge as well at that party the night before, etc. So um, just, just fascinating stuff to hear. I'll move on to something a bit more upbeat, though. I just want to mention one more thing on that. Please do. Len Bias's mother, to this day, travels around the country uh, and talks about uh, the effects of cocaine, what cocaine did to her son. And she doesn't, you know, she doesn't say this was his first time he ever used it or it was a fluke accident. She says that, you know, my son made a bad decision and he had made bad decisions before when it came to, to cocaine use. And she has devoted her life to going on a crusade against cocaine. She's a remarkable woman. I was privileged to meet her once and to listen to one of her talks. And kids get the message. And uh, I, I just can't say enough about what a wonderful woman she is. Oh, that's excellent to hear that. And I'll now uh, definitely be diving into a bit more research in, into what she's turned her life's purpose into as well. So thank you for that. Um, I was just going to ask, um, with the 1980s being the pre-internet, uh, era, of course. Um, I'm curious about what sort of research methods that you had at that time and, and what was involved in putting together some feature pieces because I mentioned earlier in the intro that you're a, an award-winning uh, beat writer. Do you mind just talking a little bit about the process of how you put together some pieces and, and what was involved behind the scenes there, Mike? Well, it's through contacts. Mm -hmm. The longer you're, you're covering the NBA, the more people trust you they give you little tidbits. Um, with the Celtics, though, you had full access to them. I had every guy's phone number. <laughs> if I had a question, I, I'd call them up. I asked the Celtics public relations director, I said, do guys today have you know a little black book with all the players' phone numbers in them? And he just looked at me like I was crazy. He said, no, you, you get one chance to talk to these guys and that's right after practice but because we traveled with the team you'd go down to the hotel uh, dining room for breakfast and even though I was a reporter you know the players didn't want to sit by themselves so they'd sit down and you'd just talk about basketball it was off the record but it built up a relationship to me it was a it was a lot easier than what the reporters today have to do mm -hmm. I don't like these post-game uh, press conferences where a coach gets up and, and says very little that's interesting. You know, I call them coach quotes. I didn't like using coach quotes. You know, we played a very tough team, and 
give them all the credit in the world and that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it didn't add a thing to your story. So I would rather, while they were holding these press conferences, uh, I think the smarter reporters go in the locker room and try to talk to a player one-on-one where they're going to get something that's different than all the other reporters have. And again, you, you over the years, you build up contacts with different teams so that if you're doing a story on uh, a player on your own team, you can call an opposition coach or an opposition uh, general manager and get their point of view of the player you're doing the story on. It still can be done. It's just a little more difficult. Gotcha. Now, that's, that's good to hear. Good insight there. Um, now, I read a couple of different bios about yourself online before we chatted today, and if my research is, is right and that detail is accurate, you actually wrote a monthly column for Basketball Digest, and also you worked with The Hoop magazine. Is that correct? I did both of those, and then I did the, uh, the annual draft preview for the Sporting News. That's great. I'm a massive fan of Basketball Digest and also Hoop Magazine. I used to uh, subscribe to them from my local news agent back in the early 90s when they'd come in. They'd put it away with my name on it. And uh, unfortunately, and for some inexplicable reason, I ended up selling them or even throwing them out uh, about 15 years ago. And I regret it to this day. But anyhow, I'm trying to track down some of those uh, issues now, thanks to the internet. Um, Basketball Digest had a great feature, which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. Is there a particular game from your life within basketball that you've seen or been to in person, perhaps, that stands out above all others? I think uh, Bird's uh, 60 points. They were playing the Atlanta Hawks down in... Was it New Orleans? In New Orleans. Yeah. I actually have the game film of it. All right. And it's amazing because he was scoring, but he wasn't scoring that... You didn't think he was going to come anywhere near 60. Yeah until the fourth quarter began, and then he could not miss. I mean, he was hitting shots, falling out of bounds. It got so bad that the Atlanta Hawks, every time Bird took a shot and hit it, the whole team just stood up and applauded, and they, they actually got fined for rooting for a member of the opposition. That's right. I remember reading somewhere that Fratello, uh, he didn't take kindly to that and actually did find some players afterwards. And as you said, in one of the plays, Bird got bumped by somebody. The foul was called, but he still launched a you know a thirty foot shot, pretty much falling into the bench, and and hit that one as well. So it was one of those crazy nights. If I was a referee, I might have closed my eyes and said, <laughs> "I think that's good." You know? <laughs> Count the basket. Oh, that's fantastic. It's excellent to hear somebody who's uh, following the team at that stage so closely recall some memories of it as well. Mike, it's been an honor to have you on the show so we can close out the NB86 series. Um, is there anything at all that you'd like to add about anything that you've covered throughout your time with Boston that uh, you might wish to, to add before we sign off? But other than that, I just want to thank you so much for um, giving me the best part of an hour of your time to talk about this today. Oh, my pleasure, Adam. For me, it's been a fascinating career. My back started acting up on me from all the travel. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time sitting down at a typewriter. So I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I knew I couldn't keep on uh, traveling and covering the Celtics, which was a great, great job. And Danny Ainge came up to me and said, uh, why don't you be my agent? And I, I looked at him and I said, Danny, I'm not a lawyer. I, I don't know anything about contracts. Uh, you know." And he said, all I want is somebody that I know I can trust. Wow. 
I ended up being Danny's agent for eight years. Oh, I had no idea. The last couple of years of uh, Dennis Johnson's life, I represented him. Uh, I represented Derek Strong. You know, it was fun. Uh, I enjoyed it, but working with guys from the Celtics that I knew, I hated recruiting kids. Uh, if you want to be a big-time agent, which I really didn't want to do, I was very happy representing just one or two good guys. Uh, I did Kevin McHale's marketing for a while. <laughs> and everything that we did was on a handshake basis. I had to sign a contract with Danny because of the Players Association. But with McHale and Dennis Johnson, I didn't because I was doing their marketing. And I was in on the contract negotiations, but I wasn't the official agent. So it was a lot of fun working with people that I that I enjoyed. But... The recruiting end of it, where you you know you have to go out and recruit all these spoiled college kids, that soured me a little, and that's when I decided to to start writing books, and that's been very rewarding for me. So I look back at it, and uh, I really think I've been lucky in that I've had a a really good career. That's fantastic to hear that sort of stuff that's happened post being the beat writer, etc., and and then what led to you ultimately becoming an author as well. I'd just love to quickly ask, and if you don't mind, sure. Like when you say you were doing some marketing for Kevin McHale and uh, and for Danny, perhaps, what did that entail? You being involved with, or did you help set them up in terms of getting um, advertisement type opportunities, or, or what was that about? Well, again, I was very fortunate because number one, I think the three top players, maybe even the four top players, when it came to doing appearances. A car dealer would want a player uh, to show up and sign autographs. Right. Or uh, an appliance store would open and have a grand opening, and they wanted a player. Okay. TV commercials, that sort of work. And I was lucky because Larry Bird didn't want any part of it. Yeah. He just did not want to deal with the public. Kevin McHale made, you know, a pretty good salary. So unless it was a really great deal, Kevin you know, would would usually take a pass. We did one major deal with a resort down on Cape Cod uh, where he ran a uh, a charity golf tournament and a uh, basketball camp for kids. And, uh, and Kevin enjoyed that and did a great job. It was almost a trickle-down effect because Kevin didn't want to go out and do a grand opening at a store uh, during the season. So then, you know, they'd say, well, is there any chance of getting Danny Ainge? And I'd say, well, let me see. And I'd, I'd talk to Danny. And, of course, the money was very good. So Danny would say, yeah, sure, I'll do it. If he wasn't available, I'd, I'd ask Dennis Johnson. So I had four guys, all local. I didn't have to do any traveling. Um, like I say, everything was done on a handshake deal. Uh, I even handled some of Robert Parrish's appearances. Oh. People that don't know Robert Parrish, they see, you know, this guy that never smiles. Uh, but that's just his image on, on the court. Off the court, uh, he is he is funny. He is glib. I did a number of autograph shows with him, and he would talk to the fans for as long as they asked them questions. Oh, that's great to hear. So I had a, a perfect thing, and it was a fun thing. You know, nothing ultra serious, but we had a lot of fun doing these appearances. That's great. Robert was known to be quite a, a stoic character on the court. 
uh, that was probably just his game phase, as you're alluding to there. But uh, in a recent podcast series, which was released, I think, by CSN New England, it's called The 86 Celtics, and it's a, a fascinating listen. There's about 13 episodes where they go behind the scenes with the majority of the players and some of the personnel involved. And uh, I think it's a two-part episode with Robert Parrish, and it's an incredible listen. You learn so much in the space of even an hour of hearing him talk than I already had learnt or known about his career to that point. So that's definitely worth a look as well. I think there's one section in there that, that's typical of Robert where uh, he's talking about Kevin McHale and he says, uh, yeah, we call him the, the deep black hole because once the ball goes in, it's not going to come back out to you. He just lights up with a smile. Yeah. And that was the real Robert Parrish. That's awesome. I haven't actually seen the documentary yet because I believe all the podcast episodes were audio that was taken from behind the scenes of filming the documentary. So I'm going to have to track that down. It looks to be uh, a great watch, no doubt. Uh, just one more quick question, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned Kevin McHale there and some of his marketing opportunities. I know that he appeared on an episode of Cheers. I don't know when the year was. It was probably early 90s or something. But were you associated with Kevin at the time that he had that appearance on uh, the famous TV show Cheers? He actually did two episodes. Okay, yep. Yeah, one involved counting the number of screws that they have to lay down on the parquet floor. <laughs> and they made an entire episode of that. The second one it had something to do with uh, his wife not wanting him to go to Cheers and, you know, and Norm saying, oh, come on, Kevin, let's have a beer. <laughs> I thought they were very good. And the uh, Jim Burroughs, who was the producer, thought Kevin, they had a lot of athletes on that show doing guest appearances. And Jim Burroughs thought Kevin was the best uh, natural actor of all of them. Yeah, I actually did read an article somewhere in the last who knows how many years where it talked briefly about Kevin's appearance on Cheers and that he was one of the more um, natural talents, as you're suggesting there as well. So I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that based on what you're saying as well. I've got a ton of other questions I'd love to ask you, but we'll keep that for another episode of the show if you'd be happy enough to come back on and talk about it. And I'd love to delve much more into your book about Bad News Barnes uh, I know you've also released a couple of other Boston books in terms of uh, Johnny Most and his life. Um, so, yeah, some fascinating topics that we can maybe touch on in, at another stage. But for now, though, Mike, um, can't thank you enough. It's been great to have you on the show, and uh, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure that our listener has as well. Where can we find your book? It's on Amazon. There is also a, a web page that's uh, badnewsbarnesbook.com. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes to this episode as well. And I uh, look forward to talking plenty more topics with you in the future date. But for now, though, I just can't thank you enough. And uh, all the best, Mike. Adam, it's been great. A lot of fun. Aaron, that wraps up NB86. The series has come to an end. It's been great to go through this second NBA season of Michael Jordan. Of course, uh, he sat out a majority of that injured, but some fascinating tidbits were learnt along the way, and uh, I've learnt plenty, as I'm sure you have as well, uh, and I hope our listener as well has enjoyed a trip down memory lane. Thanks again, as always, for being a part of the show, mate. I wouldn't choose anybody else to do this series with, mate, even if I could. Appreciate all your hard work. Sincere thanks to all our listeners as well. Fantastic to have uh, the support we do from the listeners, and I look forward to getting NB87 underway. A magnificent individual season for one Michael Jeffrey Jordan. He has an outstanding 87 campaign. As I've said before, after having loved the game for 26 years, it's very, very cool to be able to learn all brand new information about a team that existed 
30 years ago in the 85-86 Chicago Bulls, and I guess the same with the 84-85 Bulls back in MB85. Really looking forward to MB87. As always, a big thanks to those people who scanned every copy of the Tribune and its microfilms to get us this never-ending source of information for the series. I regularly think to myself the wonderful yet seemingly boring job that these people have to put every available copy of the Tribune online, tracing back to April 23, 1849. I didn't know it went back that far, actually, which is... Uh, fantastic when we get into uh, breaking down the Californian gold rush for NB 1849. <laughs> so I look forward to that one, mate. I'm celebrating the impending beginning of NB 87 with a pair of Air Jordan 2 lows, which MJ broke out during the 86-87 season. So I'm looking forward to those turning up. Anything you'd like to add, mate, before we wrap up this series? With NB 85 going for 30 episodes and NB 86 going for 15 I'm looking forward to MB87 being about seven and a half episodes. <laughs> Giddy up. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show. Ha, 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 ha.